Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. issue today. It's been almost a year since the violence in Rakhine State that sparked that mass exodus of Rohingya, 700,000 of them, mostly to Bangladesh, uh, but also elsewhere. Uh, Of course, this most recent crisis differs in scale from some of the trouble that the Rohingya have suffered over the years. It's somewhat bigger, Um, but there's a long background to the issue going back at least to 1991, 1992 in terms of this kind of exodus. Uh, I don't want to go into all that, you know, the the, uh, citizenship law and all the rest because we've got several panelists here to talk about those expert things. But but honestly, despite the unprecedented scale of the the refugee crisis, it was not entirely unexpected uh, given some of that background that, that I referenced. I would also argue that if you just taken a closer look, a disinterested look at the Burmese military, its nature and all it's been up to over the years, you wouldn't have been surprised either about what had happened. Uh, now the question is, where do we go from here? And that's what the program today is all about. Leading it off, we are very pleased and honored to have the Honorable Kelly Curry with us. Ambassador Curry is U.S. Representative to ECOSOC, Economic and Social Council of the United Nations, and she's alternate U.S. Representative to the General Assembly. It's so good to be able to introduce Kelly this way uh, with, that, with that title. She was a frequent presence here at Heritage in her previous professional life uh, on this issue, in fact. Um, but to have her here as, uh, as ambassador um, in this official capacity is really, really special. At Project 2049, Kelly was a passionate advocate for the rights of the Burmese people. Um, but she's also held several other senior positions, some of them in other NGOs, including the IR- ICRC, the International Campaign for Tibet, and IRI. She was also in the Office of the Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs, which is also the Special Coordinator for Tibet, as you know. From 1995 to 1999, Kelly was Foreign Policy Advisor to Congressman John Porter, and she served as a Majority Staff Director of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. So she understands the Hill very well, um, very well, too. So with that, let me turn it over to Ambassador Curry, and she can get us started. Thank you. Thank you, Walter, for that very kind and generous introduction. It's um, such a great pleasure to be here at the Heritage Foundation again and to be among so many friends. I look out in the audience and see many faces that I've worked with over the years who've worked on this issue for many years in different capacities and um, so many people who care deeply about the the fate and the future of the Burmese people and the Burmese nation. And and it's really a wonderful thing to be here and to be able to talk about an issue that I do care very much about. 
Um, I've spent much of my career, as Walter notes, working to support human rights and democracy around the world, but Burma has been a special place for me. It's been one of the places that I've spent the most time working on. It's been a, one of the places I've spent the most time in. And their, um, their decades-long struggle for human rights and democracy is something that, even though it's not my personal struggle, it, you know, it is a struggle that belongs to the Burmese people, I do feel very, very strongly about it. And I do feel that it's been an honor to actually work alongside so many incredible Burmese people as they've struggled to realize the, the human rights and, and democratic aspirations that they hold for themselves and their country. Um, but the, it's been a particular honor over the past year to engage in this work while representing the American people in my current role as the US representative to the Economic and Social Council at the United Nations. And to work with Ambassador Haley and our amazing team at USUN on this and so many other global challenges. It's been, however, I have to say, a very tough year as well for that same reason. Um, it's, it's been very difficult for those of us who have wished better for the Burmese people and for the Burmese nation. It has been a difficult year as we all had hoped that Burma was well on its way to taking its rightful place among the community of nations as a member in good standing and to be a front row witness to the events of the past year has been a, a very jarring and, and disturbing personal experience as well as a huge, just a tremendous professional challenge. Um, as, as fate would have it, and I, I don't know, sometimes I, I make jokes about this, it's not really very funny, but I either need to stop working at the State Department or I need to stop working on Burma because it seems like every time I'm working at the State Department something quite tremendous happens in Burma. The last time in 2008 when I was working for Paula Dobriansky in 2007, the Saffron Revolution broke out and thousands of monks were murdered by the military regime and um, we, but we did face, and we faced a tremendous challenge in terms of how to respond to that. Um, and then literally a week after I started in Washington at USUN, we get the first reports about the ARSA attacks and then the people started coming. Ultimately, approximately 700,000 of them crossed the border. As we were listening to statistics and numbers coming in from UNHCR and NGOs, people crossing the border, I was hearing numbers that, in my mind, I was seeing faces. I was seeing faces of people I knew, their family members, names, villages I'd been to in Rakhine State just a year earlier, not even. And it was really difficult to, to, to be professional about all of this, I have to be very honest. And it still is. Um, and it's, it's been a real challenge to, to have that personal attachment to this issue and try to come up with the best policy response that we can and to do the best job I can representing the American people at the UN. At the UN, born as it was in the wake of World War II and the Holocaust, it's a sad irony that the world says over and over, never again. Many times over the past 70 years, Cambodia, 
Rwanda, Srebrenica, Darfur, Sinjar. These places haunt us for our collective failure. We keep saying never again, and it keeps happening. And then we all watched in, in August 2017, September 2017, week by week in horror as 700,000 members of a religious and ethnic minority group were driven from their homes by fire, rape, and murder. The United States and the United Nations have called this latest crisis ethnic cleansing. And identifying it is important, but it doesn't really do much to help the Rohingya men, women, and children who are suffering. It's what we do, not what we say, that matters the most. I'm proud to say that the United States did spring immediately into action after the exodus began. The United States has been the single largest donor to the Rohingya crisis, having given more than $203 million since August 2017, including more than $80 million of humanitarian assistance to Bangladesh. And we've worked closely to support Bangladesh as they've struggled to deal with this crisis both the humanitarian and political and economic applications of it, not only for the refugees, but for their own communities in Bangladesh. The world has never known a nation as generous as the United States. Every American should feel proud of what we have done and how we've aided the Rohingya, our brothers and sisters, in their hour of need. But we're not just leading with aid. We're also leading diplomatically. We reimposed jade visa ban restrictions on military officials. And we, what is the word? I can't, I know, downgraded military to military engagement and sanctioned a Burmese general responsible for some of the violence through the Global Magnitsky Act. The United States is also working to hold those responsible for these crimes accountable. So that, to aid in this effort, the State Department has launched a comprehensive review and documentation project to investigate the mass atrocities. Investigators have conducted interviews with more than 1,000 Rohingya refugees from every sector of every camp in Cox Bazar. These interviews are, have yielded more than 15,000 pages of documentation, which Secretary Pompeo has indicated that he will make public as soon as possible. At the United Nations, we've taken some action, but it remains woefully insufficient. Last fall, the General Assembly passed a strong resolution condemning the violence and calling for the implementation of the Anon Commission recommendations. We also strongly supported action in the Security Council, including the presidential statement of, of November 2017 and the December 2017 special session of the Human Rights Council. The recommendations in the Anon report were not rocket science. Examples such as ensuring all individuals have freedom of movement, equal access to livelihoods, equal access to justice under the law, and citizenship are simple fundamental freedoms that Americans enjoy every day, but the Burmese government denies to the Rohingya people. As Ambassador Haley reminds our colleagues at the UN Security Council all too often, human rights and peace and security are inextricably linked. Violence will follow violations of human rights and how a government treats its own people is a reflection of how it will behave abroad. Over the last five decades, the Burmese military has waged well-documented and shockingly vicious military operations against nearly every ethnic and religious minority in Burma, 
Although the identity of the minority group changes from year to year, the identity of the perpetrator does not. One of the foundational elements of a free, democratic, and human rights respecting government is a military under civilian control. Burma has had multiple chances in the past decade to make this important step toward democratization, but so far has failed, including by not amending its military-drafted 2008 constitution. Over the past few years, this missed milestone haunts the credibility of Burma's stalled democratic transition in monumental ways. The international community, which jumped to embrace a flawed, trans a tr a flawed transition after the 2010 elections, should reflect on the role it has played in facilitating the current situation. History repeats itself too often in Burma. Impunity for past and current atrocities almost certainly guarantees that future atrocities will occur. The best hope for a promising outcome in the wake of the horrific violence against the Rohingya is an acknowledgement of what has happened. With that simple step, the Burmese military leadership, civilian government, and public can begin to end their 70-year cycle of conflict. While we push for meaningful constitutional reform, we must also attend to the here and now problems of Rohingya families in Bangladesh as well as those still living in fear in Burma. These refugees, IDPs, and those still in hiding in Burma must know that their return to Burma, their return to their homes will be safe and voluntary. IDPs must be allowed to rebuild their villages, return to work and have access to schools, places of worship, and medical care. They must be confident they will not fall prey to the same abuses that drove them from their homes in the first place. It is critical that the Burmese government not confine those who return to camps or ghettos as second-class citizens. The Burmese government must respect returnees' freedom of movement and basic human rights, including rights as citizenship. Recent months have shown some encouraging developments. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the UN Development Program, UNHCR and UNDP, have signed a memorandum of understanding to create conditions for voluntary returns. In addition, Secretary General Gutierrez has appointed a special envoy for Burma who will open an office in Naypyidaw. These steps are important. They will help to build confidence among communities on the ground from all sides that they can have safe, voluntary, and dignified return. But they are woefully insufficient. This past April and May, I guess this about April 29th to May 2nd, 14 members of the Security Council traveled together to Burma and Bangladesh. I was the United States delegate on this important field visit. I want to tell you a little bit about that trip because I think it both tells us a little bit about how far we've come in terms of making progress with the Burmese government as well as how far we have to go. We started in Bangladesh and we met, we first visited the refugee camps in Cox's Bazar and the, the line of control, the, the zero line, where there are approximately 6,000 people who live on a narrow strip of land. It's a no man's land between the border of Burma and Bangladesh. They're free to enter Bangladesh, but they are not allowed to return to their homes in Burma. They fear crossing the border into Bangladesh will forever rob them of their right to return. So they stay. In the camp at Kutapalong, we were taken to the highest point in the camp. 
When you look around from the high point at Kudapalong, the world's largest refugee camp, you literally cannot see the edges of it. It goes on beyond the vista. It was an incredible sight. I've been to many refugee camps in my life, um, and it was still, it still is something that I, you know, I can't get out of my mind. My colleagues, many of whom had never been to a refugee camp before, were stunned. As we, as we left the camps and drove, as we left the high point of the camp and drove to a, um, a camp meeting place where we were going to meet with the victims of violence and sexual assault, the cars, I know my car full of diplomats who are normally very chatty, friendly people, was deadly silent. This happened over and over again during the trip. When we sat and talked with victims, the women in our group sat with women, the men went and sat with the men. I don't really know quite how to explain the experience. We were in a hot, crowded tent with women, some girls as young as 13, 11, children who'd never been in school before, who'd never seen a doctor before, um, women with burn marks, machete marks, scars, both physical and mental, from what had happened to them. They talked about both their life before August and their life since. It affected all of us very deeply. But what was incredibly interesting to me was when we gathered again as a group, how affected the men in our group had been, because they had just been sitting with male survivors and Apparently, you know, I, I don't know if it's just something about women or what it was, but our, our conversations with the other women from the camp, it was very sympathetic, very empathetic, but there were not a lot of tears in, in the room where we were. But when we got the report back from our male counterparts who had sat with, with men from the camp, apparently there was not a dry eye in that room. After we left Cox Bazaar, we went and met with Sheikh Hasina, the leader of Bangladesh, and discussed with her how the international community can support Bangladesh in its efforts to meet the needs of the Rohingya communities in, in Bangladesh, the, as well as to support Bangladesh in its own efforts to meet the needs of its, its population. One thing we really don't want to see is that as the international community assists the Rohingya refugees, the host communities who are being burdened with this large population of now over a million refugees in, in an area that is already one of the poorest in Bangladesh, that they don't become bitter and angry toward the refugees and make the situation there worse. So we've been very conscious to make sure we are assisting the host communities. And that is something that will continue both through our bilateral assistance as well as our multilateral engagement. Um, but we had a very, a very strong meeting with her, very, very good conversation about working together and helping to ensure that the, any, any return program that goes forward is done in full cooperation with the international community and that the refugees are able to return in, in a way that meets international standards.
there's a high degree of consciousness among the Bangladeshi government about the last mass return that took place in the 1990s where people were forced back against their will. And the consequences have been for many of those same people to now be on their third flight to Bangladesh, multi-generational flight to Bangladesh as refugees. So after that, we left and went to Burma. We went to Naypyidaw. We had meetings with senior officials of the government, including Aung San Suu Kyi and the commander-in-chief, Min Aung Lain, as well as many of her um, a working dinner with the team of ministers that has been appointed to carry out the return and the rehabilitation programs for Rakhine State. These were among our most frustrating meetings. The space between what the Burmese government believes it needs to be doing and how the rest of the international community views the situation remains quite vast. And we struggled to communicate our concerns about the, about the Rohingya refugees, about the need to change the political dynamics, not just build structures that they can return to, and to address the fundamental, the fundamental root causes of the crisis, including the need for accountability for the military and the perpetrators. It was clear that there was a lot of denial about the seriousness of the situation, at least to our group, and what would be needed to truly respond to and deal with the situation in a way that would be satisfactory to the international community and the people in the refugee camps. We then traveled the next day to Northern Rakhine State. And this was, as we flew over Northern Rakhine State by helicopter, the burned villages were visible from both sides of the helicopter. It was very clear to everyone in the helicopter what we were seeing on both sides, burned village after burned village remaining village right next to Burn Village, clear lines. You could see it from the air in a way that you probably couldn't on the ground. It was shocking. I still, when I look at the pictures that I took from that day, it still shocks me that anybody could see that and not understand exactly what has happened here. The destroyed villages that we looked at were not just blank spaces on the ground. These were places where people had lived. They had had jobs. They had had livelihoods and families. And now it was just a burned out spot on the ground. These physical traces on the earth marked places where evil had happened. Every time we hear a report now of violence and we keep hearing them, not just in Rakhine State, but across northern Shan State and Kachin State. I shudder to think that we don't really even know the full extent of what's going on on the ground, the sporadic reports we get. That's why the upcoming report that the State Department will release is so important for us to have a baseline, a common baseline for accountability. This is also why we have to keep our eye on Burma. We can't stop, we can't look away. 
We have to keep helping the refugees in Bangladesh. And we have to keep rallying the international community. We have to keep pushing Burma to get to a better place. I've worked for more than two decades now with Burmese democracy advocates, human rights advocates, women's rights advocates, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, even members of ethnic armed groups. The aspirations that the Burmese people have for their country are not this. This is not what any of them want. And I believe, I truly believe that we can help Burma to get to a better place. It will take time, and we will have to push and be patient at the same time. But we must do that. It is something that we must do. But at the core of it, we have to rec remember that defending the dignity of every individual, Rohingya, Kachin, Bama, Rakhine, all of them, is what will make the world and Burma safer for all of us and more peaceful. It's the promise at the heart of the United Nations. It's why we keep working at USUN. And it's the promise at the heart of American foreign policy at the end of the day. So I thank you for being here today. And I thank Heritage in particular for all it's doing to help keep a light on this ongoing crisis. Thank you. Powerful speech. Uh, appreciate it very much. Um, we have a few minutes for questions, so if I could, uh, I've got several myself. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to exercise yeah. the prerogative of the chair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name is Kami Barton with the Pakistan Spectator, and the way you are describing it's another Holocaust that is taking place in Asia. So I just wondered that if in Washington, even Jewish lobby would, uh, you know, when if you can get these concerned to them, they would love to get involved. And I don't know if you know, but uh, Trump, when he saw that Saudi, you know, Trump has very good relationship with Saudi Arabia, but when he saw civilians were being victimized uh, in Yemen, he talked with his advisor that why Saudis are doing this, even he is a very good friend of uh, Saudi Arabia. And the third point is Miss Lisa Curtis, she has worked for years at the Heritage Foundation. She has Trump's ear. So I just wondered that if, why don't you push these buttons to do something for these Burmese people? I mean, they are human beings, regardless what is their religion. It's not their fault. They are born in Muslim. It doesn't mean that they are, you know, genetically terrorist. So they should not be victimized. Thanks. Should we take a couple? And then... Thank you. Is it okay if I... Ask my question sitting here. Sure, sure. Um, uh, my name is Safan. I'm a new supporter for Randall Agency. Uh, and um, <laughs> these people, as she uh, told us, it's stunning, actually. And uh, these people are described as most persecuted uh, minority on the, uh, on the earth. And I truly believe that. <clears throat> Pardon me. I, spend, I also spent about a month in the region um, um, I've been at those camps. Uh, I've, I've, I've visited every single hospital in Cook's Bazaar. And I also uh, been in uh, Rakhine State, State by uh, Sinekinen. It, it was uh, uh, the things I saw still haunts me, as she said. But my question is, um, 
Do you believe that the major countries, particularly U.S., has been doing enough uh, to stop this genocide that has been taking place there? And my second question, um, I really ask, uh, uh, looking for the answer. Um, why do you believe, or why do you think the President Obama uh, lifted, those, lifted those uh sanctions against the country, even though Myanmar never really stopped killing these people and persecuting them for decades? And uh, my, uh, does it does it have to do anything with natural resources that pass through uh, the Rakhine State or anything? Because I've got a lot of comments on the ground uh, about this. Thank you very much. Yes, hi. I'm sorry for sitting down and um, asking this question. So I work for Voice of America, and I have only just one question. Till now, it's been called that it's an ethnic cleansing, and why not? It's called a genocide. So I believe that right now the United States is leading on this issue. We are, um, in terms of providing assistance to people in the immediate aftermath and ongoing, on, on an ongoing basis, we are far and away, we're, you know, the leading provider of assistance. We've worked very closely with Bangladesh to meet immediate humanitarian needs. We've also engaged very vigorously with the Burmese government. We've sent senior leadership out. Um, Secretary Tillerson was out there in the fall of last year. We've had numerous high-level U.S. officials go out and engage directly with the Burmese authorities to try to encourage them, to push them to to take a more appropriate, to have a more appropriate response to the crisis. And we continue to do that. Um, I think that when you talk about um, here domestically in our, in our politics, you know, we've got a great team in our um, administration, both at the National Security Council, at the State, De State Department, um, at USUN, that really are committed to showing American leadership on this issue. Um, in particular, I would note last week the um, Advancing Religious Freedom Ministerial that Ambassador Brownback convened at the State Department where um, Secretary Pompeo, Vice President Pence, and just about every senior U.S. official who spoke talked about this issue as one of the most pressing problems we face. And continue to highlight it and also to put it in the context of the need for systematic and systemic reforms in Burma that can help bring the military under control, can help have a genuine transition to democracy that allows, that, that will help to break this cycle, as I said before. And we're, we're deeply focused on those things. Um, a number of outside organizations are heavily involved in promoting um, solutions, including doing research. If you look, I know the Holocaust Museum, you mentioned the Jewish community, has done some, some research on this issue and has a tremendous um, uh, project that they are working on. They've done photo exhibits. They were one of the earliest. We, they, they hosted the, closing res the opening and closing receptions for the the Earth Ministerial last week, and at the at that ministerial closing reception where Ambassador Haley spoke, we heard 
from a direct plea from the Holocaust Museum. They closed their remarks on, on this issue, and they, they were one of the earliest ones to start talking about this in, um, in I think, 2012, they did a, or 2013, they did a photo exhibit after the 2012 violence in, that was uh, targeting the Muslim community in Burma. So many, many organizations in the United States, many non-governmental organizations have been very actively leading on this issue. And um, so I think that there is, but, th but it can always use more attention and, and more resources put to it. Um, but other major countries, it's a real challenge. We do have serious problems in the Security Council with China and Russia. This is not a secret. Um, and when you start talking about um, the reasons why, that's where I think the natural resource extraction issues, the economic concerns, um, but as well as stability concerns come from um, with China being a you know, neighbor of Burma and sharing a, a significant and unstable border with Burma. They have a strong interest in what happens here, and in particular in Rakhine State. They have a major port project in Rakhine State at Jokku, and so they have um, an interest in having the situation under control. Not necessarily, um, they don't necessarily agree with the United States on either the diagnosis or how to approach the problem. And this has been a major issue within the Security Council, certainly for us, in terms of not being able to move forward with things that we would like to do because the Chinese have not shared, a, we don't have a shared analysis of the problem with them. Um, as far as how we characterize the, the situation, um, the, the department undergoes very vigorous and, and rigorous legal and um, legal analyses based on the, the information that we have and the, the legal rubrics that we use to, um, to develop the, the language that we use in situations like this. The, the determination by the department last year was that this situation was ethnic cleansing. Um, at this point, that is the determination. Um, there may be other determinations in the future, but for now, that is the, the language that we are using to describe the situation. But as I said, what you call it is less important than what you do about it. In some, in some cases, what you call it depends, determines what you can do about it. But in this particular case, what we do about it is not being driven by what we're, what we're calling it. What we're doing about it is being driven by how we can help to help the people on the ground in the most immediate and effective way and how we can advance a, a vision of a peaceful, prosperous, democratic Burma where the military is firmly under civilian control and all the people of the country can live in peace and dignity with their rights protected by a, an elected government that is able to function without interference from the military. Let me ask you a question. Um, it, it's so important what you said about the, uh, the faces that you saw. You didn't just see the numbers coming in. And it's so important because I think, you know, it puts an entirely different uh, face on the problem. Right? I mean, we see these things happening all over the world, and they're just numbers, and they're theoretical. Theoretical, and, and you, you had personal experiences that made it more than that. 
Um, the other side of that is the response of the Burmese people to the atrocities. Um, and that has been shocking as well. And you must have personal experiences there too, people you know, and you must picture the faces of people who don't really have any problem with this or support it, and which from all I've seen is the majority of Burmese people. So how do you address that? That's because that, that's you know a fundamental uh, a fundamental cause of all this as well, right? Um, it, that that has been for me personally one of the biggest um, heartbreaks in a way is people that I've known for decades who I fought alongside um, in the trenches. I mean, not literally fighting, but <laughs> but fellow. Um, advocates and activists that I've worked with for decades, but, and to see them either turn away with indifference or worse in some cases has been really, really difficult. Um, but I think that there are a couple of things that I, you know, the, the way that I tend to, to think about this, first of all, there are people, there are the amazing people that I've worked with who haven't turned away, who have stood up for the Rohingya. And those people are the ones who give me hope. That is why I continue to have hope for Burma, is because of people like, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid for their safety to even name them at this point, because it's so dangerous for many of them to even be publicly outed. But the, you know, the Rakhine activists I know who has been doing cross-community work for years and is continuing to try to keep programs going in Rakhine State, in Mongdaw, to, to and protect his Rohingya staff, the, the ethnic women who've stood up for their Rohingya sisters and talked about sexual violence and said, you know, this is our Me Too moment, basically. We were there, we've seen this happen to us, and we know this is what the Burma Army does. So we can, you know, we'll testify that yes, we believe our Rohingya sisters, even though many people don't, because we know what happened to our villagers in Karen State and Kachin State and Shan State and Mon State. And those are the people, and, and, the, and the Bama activists even, who are appalled by the hate speech and the racism in their society and are committed to changing it. Those are the people who I look to for hope and to keep me inspired that this is not the permanent state of being. The other thing, and this is, you know, I'm going to say something that I, I, you know, I'll just tell you what I said when it was my opportunity to speak to Aung San Suu Kyi, is that, you know, I grew up in the American South. I was born in a small town in Georgia and spent my entire life in Thomasville, Georgia, a, a very small town in South Georgia. My mother went to segregated schools in Georgia her entire life. She never went to school with an African-American person. The only black people she knew worked in her house and in her yard. And that was my mother. I grew up, I was one of the first generation of Americans in the 70s to grow up completely through segregated schools, or desegregated schools, sorry, integrated schools, public schools. And I had African-American teachers. I had African-American classmates. I have grown up in an integrated society in the South. And I am a different person as a result of that than my mother and my grandmother. 
In some cases, this is generational. Burma has been isolated for so long, and the prejudices and the, the um, racism that infects still our society as a result of the birth defect of our constitution, of slavery, um, of, of the second-class citizenship that African Americans had in the United States since at the founding of our country still affects the way we deal with each other every day in this country. So the idea that a country like Burma with its history is not going to suffer from such, such things is, is ludicrous. Of course they're going to have these problems. The question is what are they going to do about it going forward? And so what I said to Aung San Suu Kyi, I said this is a birth defect of our country. It poisons our society and it's something we grapple with every day to this day after 200 years plus of democracy. Please don't do this to your country. Please don't bring your democracy forward with second-class citizenship as an inherent part of it. It will haunt you for the rest of your days. If you we'll see what happens. We're still, you know, we're, at, we're not at the end of a process. And that's how I manage that. Time for maybe two more. I'll just take them together. Jack Mian with the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. Always great to see you, Ambassador Kelly. Um, based on your Security Council trip and NAVDAR and government meetings, I'm quite keen to hear your take on the internal dynamics between the Commander-in-Chief and the State Counselor. Where, where is that at? Because in the larger general sense of thing, we're seeing a lot of her rhetoric becoming closer to that of the Demeral, and we'd love to hear your, your take on that. Thank you. Hi, I'm Joe Murray with First Principle Strategies. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, you mentioned that early on in your remarks that the U.S. is leading on this issue and specifically pointed to um, Jade Visa ban on military officials, downgraded mill-to-mill engagement, and sanctioned one military official. And then later in your remarks, you mentioned that, um, you know, the frustration of speaking with Aung San Suu Kyi and the military commanders. Um, what, in your opinion, do U.S. policymakers have at their disposal that would help incentivize the military to act accordingly and behave properly? Um, okay, those are two tough questions. <laughs> um, with regard to the relationship between Aung San Suu Kyi and Men Online, I think that that's something that we really, there's a lot of news reporting about it, and I, I think that we don't have a good, good sense, and it was it was very um, from our Security Council trip. It was very clear that they're 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 operating on different wavelengths in a sense. I don't know a good way to put it. I mean, she's very isolated. I think she's surrounded by a group of advisors um, who control the information that gets into her very tightly. And they manage the flow of information and the flow of policy options to her very tightly in a way that's not necessarily um, going to end well, if I can predict, <laughs> um, which I shouldn't do. But, and as far as Men Online, I think that he is very confident that in, in the prerogatives of the military at this point, 
he is sitting atop an institution that has so far gotten away with pretty much everything they've ever done. And there is not a lot of incentive, just to kind of combine these two questions, for them to change anything about the, the, the current, current situation. And that includes, you know, there's not a lot of incentive at this point for them to launch a coup, in my opinion, because they, wouldn't, they would just get hammered for it. But the current situation affords them a lot of freedom of action, and while they're able to, in some sense, hide behind the civilian government. Um, I, I think that's probably about all I can really say about that. It's just, it's not something that we have a tremendous amount of ability to, to, um, to understand. And I think that it's, it's not a, it's, it's clearly not a cohesive relationship and it's not one that's bound by trust and confidence across, across the two pillars of, of the government. Um, and I would actually make it three pillars of the government because there's the Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD. I mean, it's often talked about as a, you know, two systems. There's the military and the civilian side. But there's the political civilian side and then there's the institutional civilian side. And I think you also have to make a distinction between those two elements of the civilian side and how this, the institutional civilian side, which is largely made up of people who served under the previous regime and had no problem defending it. And, you know, they're very, you know, they're, they're the civil servants, the ministers, the technocrats, um, and then the military. So I wouldn't even, it, it's actually more complicated than just having a two-headed government. It's really almost a three-headed government, which is quite something to, from a policy perspective to try to deal with. And as far as incentives, I think that our incentives haven't really changed, or our ability to incentivize the military hasn't changed that much. I think that by promoting accountability, by can, by sticking to our principles on accountability and by ensuring that we take a principled stand there, that is something that the, the military um, can, can be responsive to. It's, it's at the end of the day, it's their choice whether they want to go back to being dependent on the Chinese for everything. Um, for, for all their many, many faults, I see the Burmese military as their, their kind of self-conception is that they're patriotic. So they probably don't want to become a full-fledged client state of the Chinese because it goes against their patriotic instincts as they envision themselves. Um, to that end, that, that creates some opportunity. But I don't think that the United States ever wins these um, arguments by putting ourselves at the level of the Chinese. I think that we win them by being principled and by doing things differently.
Okay, well, we have, um, we don't have a tremendous amount of time here, so uh, building off of uh, Kelly's excellent remarks, a very, very powerful statement about uh, her own personal involvement and in, in, in the country's involvement on this issue. Um, maybe our panels can keep it relatively brief and hit the high points uh, so we can have a little bit of time for, for Q&A here. Um, I'm going to give each a quick introduction so you know who's sitting up here, and then we'll just go through uh, uh, one at a time. Uh, U Kwa Min is a former member of Burma's parliament and, and former political prisoner. Uh, he was elected in the famous 1990 election. Um, I know that you have a very interesting stories. I'm hoping maybe in two minutes of your remarks we can learn a little bit more about, well, just, just a part of it about you. And then you can tell us about the, the rest. Uh, I, I would like to hear more about that and maybe from uh, better you recounting it than, than me recounting it. Uh, then we'll turn to Francisco uh, Bencasma. Uh, Francisco is an Asia-Pacific advocacy manager at uh, Amnesty International. Before that, he was Democrat staff on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for about five years where he was front and center on the U.S. policy uh, debate and, and policy development on Burma. And then lastly, we'll turn to Olivia Enos. Uh, Olivia is a, a policy analyst here in our Asian Studies Center. Uh, she heads up our work on human rights and transnational crime issues, and she's been at Heritage for uh, about five years, a little more than five years, I think. So uh, with that, um, sir, let me turn it over to you, and you can get us started with your remarks. Yeah. Okay, thank you all. I'm very happy and feel honored to give the chance to introduce myself. Uh, first of all, I'm a Rohingya. I am an elected parliamentarian of 1990 elections. Presently, I am heading a registered political party in the name of Democracy and Human Rights Party. Last April, uh, I was in the discussion rooms with UN Security Council in our Nepieto. There, I think I saw Ambassador Kelly. I don't know if she remembers me or not. <laughs> <laughs> and there also, I represented the Rohingya community, and I explained, expressed, the situation, what's happening in Rakhine State, and what we expect from international community, especially from Security Council. Okay, secondly, I want to introduce who Rohingya really is. Because Myanmar governments and our sisterly community, the Rakhine peoples in Rakhine State, uh, do not do not recognize us. They are oh, accusing us, branding us, labeling us as interlopers. There's, we came from formerly Pakistan, presently from Bangladesh. It is not the thing, really. Arkani is most close politically, historically, and geographically with Bengal, East Bengal. There were people from the beginning of history, Indian peoples in Rakhine State. 
this rakhine who are part of myanmar part of burma came only lately in 10th century 11th century they got super supremacy so what is called dominations of rakhine state it is true we are not denying the existence of rakhine you are not going to fight against the rakhine just what we want is please recognize us as we are don't blame us to be from foreign country uh, according to geopolitical situations of myanmar in the eastern border there are a lot of communities who are affiliated uh, with chinese they are culturally linguistically they are chinese in the thai border there are chinese thai peoples in myanmar in our country we call them shan they are similar to the thai peoples in in their south in the same in the western border they are chin kachin they have their majority peoples in india and china the same logic is true in rakhine state arkane is separated from myanmar with rakhine yuma mountain range a big range you cannot cross it easily so arkan's relationship in ancient time was with india and bengal so there are a lot of people not a lot of peoples all minority races in rakhine state speak a sort of bengali dialect not similar to bengali but it is nearer and closer to bengali dialect all the communication language especially in the time of rakhine period and british period was rohingya language it was lingua franca of rakhine state so there were there was oh arkans and chitagon area where under the same rule under the same sovereignty for many many centuries people they are free to settle wherever they like they can choose their settlement anywhere in bengal or rakhine so all minorities present in rakhine have their mainstream population in bangladesh they are, they are culturally the same all are recognized as myanmar ethnic people so called indigenous people so called among the 130 national races except rohingya there is a reason there is a conspiracy behind this logic rohingya should also be a border people who are in rakhine state as well as in bangladesh most rohingya in bangladesh are integrated with bengalis chitogonian why they are culturally religiously very the same you can call so their integrations with chitogonian or bengali are very easier you cannot distinguish a community as a rohingya in bangladesh at present but in british census there were a community in the name of rohingya in bengal so these rohingyas are also in rakhine state present day especially the military governments and the onsan suchi's government do not uh, want to recognize these rohingyas but the real 
factual thing is, Myanmar independence father, Aung San, recognized Rohingya as an ethnic group, and he allowed the Rohingya to represent in his 1947 constitutional assembly. After then, until 1982, new citizenship law, Rohingya were allowed to take part in all national elections. There were about eight national elections before 1990. In all elections, Rohingyas were allowed to vote as well as to contest in the elections. There were Rohingya minister. There were minister from Rohingya community and Rohingya parliamentarian. According to Burmese law, no foreigner can contest in election law. Only citizen can contest in national election, not ordinary citizen. A citizen whose parents are also Burmese citizen can only contest in the election. So what I mean, getting the right to contest in national election means these people are Burmese full citizen. At that time, there was only one category of citizen, full citizen. All are equal. A few people, foreigners who applied for naturalization, got naturalized citizenship. But this community is very few, not com community-wise, individuals. So we got the Rohingya God. The right to compete in election means we are full citizens. And again, we are recognized as an indigenous people of Myanmar since 1960 with ministerial order uh, decisions. Uh, Moon, Lahu, Pou, and Rohingya, four languages in one <coughs> cabinet decision. One decision, four languages as national language languages to relay from Myanmar Broadcasting Service, BBS. At that time, there was only one re relay station, radio station in Myanmar. It was official government control. So, present day, Pau people got their indigenous self-administered zone, and other Mon have got their state. But Ronja is said by the military and Aung Suchi. Don't mind, I'm sorry uh, to say something against Aung San Suu Kyi, it is a reality, you see? Because in America, I think, there is a good admiration of Aung San Suu Kyi. Everyone loves her, even in the airport. The airport clerical staff say, you from Myanmar? Yes, I am from a beautiful country, ruled by a very, uh, what is called, qualified leader, leader Aung San Suu Kyi. I have to give some answer. Uh, which is not in favor of beautiful country and good leader Aung San Suu Kyi. They choose me. So they are not going to recognize us today. They say you are from Bangladesh. Again, there was a constitution before the independence of Myanmar. It was drawn, written by Aung San, Bujok Aung San, the father of independence, Iru, independence, father of Myanmar. 
Under that constitution, there came two laws. One is citizenship election law. Another is citizenship law. Election means if someone wants to be Burmese citizen, he has the right, the chance, and the oh, something he can apply for citizenship. Uh, another is city, full citizenship law. That citizenship law was enacted in the, on, the, on the very day of independence, 4th January of 1948. According to these two laws, constitution and citizenship law, Rohingyas were recognized as full citizens. Rohingya got nat nationality cards. We, go, we call it in Myanmar as national registration cards. This card was the same for all the Burmese citizens. Burma, Chin, Kachin, Rakhine, Rohingya, all whole held the same national registration cards. So, but what happened? After coming in power, the Unne Wing, General Ne Wing, is very much anti-Muslim. And to Rohingya, he do not want Rohingya to have uh, some rights in Rakhine State because Rakhine States have two major communities, Rohingya and Rakhine. Rohingya and Rakhine are proportional, almost equal populations. Even in early period, Rohingyas were majorities. Anyhow, Unai Wing's thinking is, his philosophy is, if these people are given equal right, they someday will try to, to divide Rakhine state, and they may claim a state of their own in the northern part of Rakhine, where they are majority. Keeping it in mind, he introduced at a lot of Excuse me, let me have <laughs> He passed, Wing passed a lot of discriminatory laws and instruction. There are a lot of Jim Crow law, I, I think you call it in America. There are a lot of Jim Crow law and instruction to discriminate, to what you'll call marginalize uh, this Rohingya community. Among them, 1982 law is one. We have already a citizenship law in 1948. Why we need another new citizenship law? It, it was just a uh, to a strip of Rohingya's citizenship. The reason behind this new citizenship law was there was an exodus of refugees in 1978, nearly 300,000. First, Myanmar government denied them to be Myanmar citizens, Myanmar residents even. They accused them to be fresh Bangladeshi. 
they denied to receive them, to accept them back for some reasons, especially known to them, I think because, because of international pressure. Why? All the refugees in the Bangladesh camps could produce, could show Burma nationality cards that I call natural, national registration cards. Every family, every elderly people can show it there. So international community press, Myanmar government, to accept that reality that these people are not Bangladeshi, they are from Myanmar, Myanmar citizen. Myanmar government have obligation to accept them back. Une Wings was politically enlightened leader, not only military. So he understand the complications of this issue and he received all the refugees and resettled them in their original places. What he thought, these so-called national, national registration card is a trouble for us. We cannot discriminate them. We cannot marginalize them. We cannot persecute them. So we need a new citizenship law. Can I, can I yeah, go on? Yeah, please. please uh, maybe if you could finish and then we'll, you know, make this. Uh, okay, okay, thank you. And then we'll move on and try to get to Q&A. Right? So he, have, he had uh, deliberated on a new law which will strip of Rohingya their citizenship. So 1982 law is uh, just enacted by UNEWIN's a special order. It was against the international norms and standards. Even it was against the 1974 constitution of Myanmar. In 1974, there was a new constitution in, in Myanmar that, is, that was what you'll call socialized uh, to, to be in conformity with socialist socio-economic order. Even this 1972 uh, citizenship law is against, not in conformity with the 74 constitution. That is why this was not implemented, this was not enforced and until 1990 when the constitution was banned by new military leaders who got power in a coup data. So the present crisis is not the recognizing Rohingya as Burmese citizen, just to restoring their original mm -hmm. citizenship they enjoyed for about say about for the last 60, 70 years after independence. Okay. <coughs> Again, I'll, I'll finish. Okay. There may be some Bahamis or Arkanis. I, I came for a visiting purpose here, I have to go back. I'm not going to exaggerate or to condemn my government. Uh, I don't want to be biased against them. What I am telling is the, uh, a part of Truth, I cannot say all the truth here because it will be harmful for me to go back. 
In the, a few weeks, I'm going back. I have some duties there. What happening, what today happening is just not only ethnic cleansing. To cleanse the people, they have committed human, sorry, crimes against humanity. In unhuman things they exercise for long, long decades. Finally, they are international community, especially experts and human rights organizations already have issued their statement that it is genocide. Asian Parliamentarian Forum have said there are 43,000 parentless children in the present Bangladeshi camps. Again, MSF and NGU uh, issued a statement some months ago that there are 6,700 6, people who so are killed some, some months ago. But at present, it will be more than that. My estimation will be it will be more than 20,000. That is why there are 43,000 parentless children in the camp. Again, majority of the peoples in the camps are female, not male. Main population is uh, smaller than the female population. So. From our perspective, it is full genocide. Their houses were abandoned, their people were killed, young and babies were tossed, thrown into the fire. Burning is not enough. No, they have bulldozed all the villages abandoned by the refugees. 80% of the Rohingya population have fled to Bangladesh, especially from Mongdo side. From Mongdo Township, it will be 85%. All villages are bulldozed. So that when, when you come back, you cannot recognize, you cannot point out where you live and wh which one is your home state, where you live. And government have planned to resettle them, non-Rohingya peoples in those villages. Okay. So if the Rohingyas are repatriated, we don't know where they will be set in the agreement please it shows me a few minutes a few minutes longer <laughs> <laughs> in bangladesh myanmar agreement it is said rohingya repatriates will be resettled in their original place or somehow suitable for them that is a big problem this or why there should come in or that means everyone will be subjected to that or everyone should be resettled somewhere else. And their land properties. Arkan is not like America. It is not an industrial area. It is just a place of farmers, agriculturists. If their agricultural lands are confiscated, grabbed by the government, what the refugee will depend on for their survival. It is big questions. Already half of the farming lands of Rohingya in Situe, Yathedong, Mongdo, Busidang, Soya, grabbed and distributed to non-Rohingyas, non-Rohingyas. At present, there is plan to grab small farming lands from 
the Rohingyas and distribute it to non-Rohingyas. Again, there is yeah, a MOU with United Nations branches in Rakhine, UNDP and UNSCR. Before my coming here, I have discussion with the, those UNSCR and UNDP representative, head of the missions. They say we will try our best not to uh, let Myanmar government uh, uh, what you'll call infringe the rights of the Rohingya. But before my coming there, I read a newspaper, UNDP and UNSCR, head of the mission. So we are traveling in Rakhine State, especially in Mongdo and Buthidong area, to find out 30 locations to resettle non-Rohingya people. 30 locations. In those programs, UNDP and UNSCR will fund and give uh, help to the Myanmar governments. So if there are 30 new settlements, where they will be settled, not in ownerless, uh, what is called virgin lands. These also are lands of Rohingya. So uh, still today, marginalization and discrimination is going on. Myanmar government is not clean-hearted. They say they will bring 300 people a day, five days a week. Okay, it will take to bring, to repatriate one million Rohingyas for about 30 years. It is not real repatriation. It is just a showing uh, to the world that we are ready. We are not discriminating these people who so receive and that. The main problem is in 1979, 78, refugee repatriation process, there was memorandum with United Nations, especially with UNSCR. In 92, there was another exodus of Rohingyas in Rakhine State. There, were, there was also a MOU. In those MOUs, there were the uh, phrases, the, the clauses that Rohingyas are Myanmar citizens. This might be a good chance to so in this presence MAU, there is no that words. That means only the peoples who reside in Myanmar will be repatriated. Once they came in Myanmar, they will be subjected to former persecution. So I think international community, especially United States, America, have an obligation to rescue these people, to salvage these people. Not to say it is just a humanitarian issue. It is a deeply rooted political issue that is uh, oh, directed to the dis extinctions of a ethnic community. So uh, that's a perfect place because Amnesty International, <laughs> that's Amnesty International's business to focus okay, on. Okay, thank you much. My time is over. Try to understand us, try to understand the Rakhine or Rohingya situation from the real 
factual perspective. Thank you all. Thank you very much. That was, that was terrific. Great. Uh, well, thank you, Walter and Olivia, for having us here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Min shared a lot of what I was going to mention in terms of Amnesty's findings with respect to a system of uh, discrimination um, and apartheid-like um, that is found under Rakhine State and how that makes issues of repatriation really difficult. Um, but how about I sort of um, put into context why we're here. I mean, it's been almost one year since the Myanmar military um, embarked on a devastating and lethal campaign of violence against the Rohingya population. Um, and the world watched in horror as hundreds of thousands of Rohingya began arriving in Bangladesh, bringing them horrific accounts of violence at the hands of Myanmar security forces. These atrocities across, uh, happened across several hundred villages. And while the precise death toll may never be known, as Mr. Men mentioned, um, it is estimated that at least 6,700 Rohingya uh, were killed in the first month alone, including at least 730 children under the age of five. Amnesty International has documented that at least nine of the 11 types of crimes against humanity took place during these attacks. A couple months ago, I had the opportunity to visit Cox's Bazaar, where I spoke with several Rohingya who were, um, you know, who had actually been victims of some of these human rights violations. First, I spoke to Nuri Muhammad, who is a young man, 18-year-old, who had to flee. Um, and one of the last things that he remembers after seeing his uh, mother um, was the Myanmar military shooting his family. He was a he was a um, one of uh, one of ten uh, siblings, um, and. Uh, he basically, his last words that his mother told him uh, were that he has to escape um, and go, um, you know, west before the Myanmar military uh, found him. Um, and as he was escaping, uh, the military actually shot his leg um, and he hid under the lake, um, putting his mouth out so in order for him to be able to breathe um, while he hid for the persecution that was going on in his village. Little did he know that his leg was actually injured, um, that one of the bullets uh, scraped um, directly into it. Um, and then he fled for three days, making his way to Bangladesh um, without realizing that one of his, um, you know, one of the bullets was still in his leg. Um, he didn't realize that, uh, he, he had no knowledge of how much of his family had survived the attack. Um, he only saw his mother um, as he was escaping. Um, and fortunately he, you know, Two of his sisters survived, but everybody else of his family members died in the attack. Um, and I asked Nuri, um, what would it take for him to return? And he said, there's nothing left for him back in Myanmar. All that he wants for his family is justice. All he wants is to understand why the Myanmar military um, did what they did and that they be held um, you know, and have some justice for his family. So these are one of the hundreds of stories that Amnesty International has documented um, and been reporting on. We've been working on Myanmar for decades, documenting human rights violations for various ethnic minorities. Um, and most recently, last month, uh, we published a report um, where we identified specific military units, in particular the 33rd and the 99th Light Infantry Division, who were responsible for crimes against the Rohingya. And we named 13 individuals who we believe should be investigated for their role in crimes against humanity. Responsibility, in our opinion, for these crimes extends to the very top of the chain of the command, and so too must justice and accountability. 
Um, I'll also, you know, echo very much the concerns with respect to um, at the root of a lot of this is a question of citizenship. Um, this doesn't just this didn't just happen in one isolated event. It has been a long system of discrimination and segregation that still continues to rakhine state today. When we talk about repatriation, you need to not only um, think about what's going on, you know, what do the Rohingya in the camps think about, but how are the Rohingya who are still left in northern Rakhine uh, being treated? Do they have things like freedom of movement, freedom of religion, um, and do they have their citizenship and rights restored as every, as every person should uh, in Myanmar? I'll be brief, um, but I'll, left, I'll leave with two points and then a couple recommendations. First is that today, um, you know, Myanmar Reuters journalists Walone and Chasao went back to trial. These were two Reuters journalists who have been imprisoned for over 230 days for basically the crime of doing their job, which is journalism. They were uncovering um, what what is now known as the Indian Massacre, and they were, um, you know, essentially set up by the Myanmar military um, and actually entrapped after they were given confidential military documents and are now undergoing one of the longest cases that has been seen in Myanmar um, for draconian laws, which Amnesty has documented has been used in the past by the Myanmar military uh, to stifle dissent. Uh, Amnesty has called for their unconditional release um, because we believe that it is a tremendous transgression when it comes to press freedom in the country. And... We think that it's important for the international community to continue to raise uh, their, their case. The other case that we've also been working on is that former child soldier, An Kotwe, um, who is serving two years and six months in prison in connection with a media interview that he gave about his experience in the Myanmar military. He faces a further three years in prison after he protested his conviction, and he should be immediately and unconditionally released. Both of these cases and several countless others show that there is a culture of a lack of reproach among the Myanmar military, that um, it's unclear how you have a commissioner, a credible and independent um, commission that will actually investigate the you know, human rights violation in Rakhine State when the Myanmar military is still beyond reproach, where the Myanmar military has still created a culture that anybody who criticizes them gets basically sent to jail and imprisoned. And these two cases are just one of the many examples. So I'll end quickly with a couple recommendations. Amnesty International has called for uh, United Nations Security Council referral um, on the situation in Myanmar to the International Criminal Court. Such a referral should cover crimes across the country, including in Kachin and Northern Shan State. And the United States has an important role on this crucial accountability and justice issue. Second is that while building for support for international justice, the international community should take immediate steps to ensure that evidence is collected and preserved for use in future judicial proceedings. Um, you know, Ambassador Curry mentioned this during her remarks, but the State Department is undergoing a similar process on the Rohingya, which should be made public and expanded to include Kachin and Shan State as well after that investigation is concluded. Third is that the United States should push on Myanmar to enact security sector reform, which includes dismantling the system of discrimination and segregation built to exclude ethnic minorities. Um, and fourth is a question on congressional legislation. Uh, where we, Amnesty International supports legislation that's making its way through Congress. We were hearkened to see that the legislation passed the House on a 382-30 bipartisan vote. Uh, but Congress's failure to add it to the final National Defense Authorization Bill is a dark day on its human rights record. 
Congress needs to speak with one voice and hold senior military officials accountable for their actions. And so it's incumbent upon Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to allow for the Burma Human Rights and Freedom Act uh, to pass the Senate. And so I'll leave there. Thank you. Thank you, Francisco. Olivia. I'll be really brief because I think we all want to get to Q&A. Um, so when all of this started happening, I remember reading a story of a 20-year-old girl named Hasina. Her name was changed in the Human Rights Watch report. Um, but Hasina, in just a week's time in the aftermath of August 25th, lost almost every single one of her living family members. Right in front of her eyes, she had her baby snatched from her and thrown into the fire. And she witnessed her mother not only raped, but brutally axe-murdered in front of her as she thought she was to be brutally murdered and raped as well. Luckily, she escaped uh, that and was able to live to tell her story, but not without the many scars that Kelly referenced that so many Rohingya women and girls, but also men and boys, are also experiencing. In the aftermath of that, we've now seen 700,000 Rohingya flee, 6,700 that have uh, died. There's probably many more that have not yet been discovered. This is a grave atrocity, and the question for the international community now is how we will respond. We heard from Kelly a lot about what the U.S. response has been so far. I want to outline a couple of key themes that I think have emerged in the aftermath that could help direct future U.S. policy and also our indicators of sort of where we're at today. The first theme that I wanted to highlight is that the Rohingya crisis is an important opportunity for the U.S. to reset broader U.S. policy toward Burma. So while the atrocities have occurred and we've seen a, an immediate response with humanitarian aid, and we commend the U.S. for being the number one provider of humanitarian aid, it's easy to see a quick response in the immediate aftermath. But I think what's really telling is what will happen over the long term. As Francisco mentioned, there's a number of um, pieces of legislation under consideration that would increase sanctions. And I think sanctions uh, specifically targeted financial measures against individuals in the military who are responsible for these atrocities are certainly merited. It was a positive thing that in December 2017 of last year, um, General Meng So was, in fact, placed on the global Magnitsky list um, specifically for his human rights abuses, and that was something positive. But that should have only been a beginning step and should really lead to broader sanctions being considered. Um, as Francisco mentioned, there is legislation currently pending, and there was some consideration of including it in NDAA. The final outcome of that, I think, is still to be determined. Um, but I think that there are ways that the sanctions could perhaps be improved. Number one, we can use pre-existing Jada Act authorities to actually sanction the military officials now. So we don't need new legislation. But it would be wise to have new legislation because it could expand the mandate under which those individuals could, in fact, be sanctioned. Um, such legislation should direct the U.S. Treasury to use all available tools to hold the Burmese military to account, including the specially designated nationals list, but also using additional global Magnitsky sanctions that allow them to go uh, to target those individuals on human rights and corruption grounds. Also, it would be wise for Congress to require the State Department to issue a report every six <coughs> months suggesting that there may be new individuals who could be sanctioned 
and reiterating those who have not yet been sanctioned but should be sanctioned. And just as it's important to have a clear on-ramp for why sanctions are put in place, it's equally important to have an off-ramp so that it's possible for individuals to get off of those lists if they demonstrate an improvement in behavior in order to incentivize that good behavior in the future. But sanctions aren't the only aspect of U.S. policy. We shouldn't only have sanctions. We should also be continuing to provide humanitarian assistance. The U.S. has already been a leader on this, but they should continue to lead in providing that assistance. Second, um, the U.S. government should continue, continue to condemn efforts to prematurely repatriate Rohingya refugees. Um, we saw a lot of discussion about them potentially being repatriated. There was encouraging movement from Bangladesh in the decision not to repatriate them early, but we need to continue to maintain that line and focus on that. Um, the third is that the U.S. can use its refugee resettlement program and grant Rohingya refugees priority to refugee status, which would enable them to be processed through the refugee resettlement system <coughs> at an expedited rate. And then there are a number of other recommendations that I outline in my report, but one final one would be to look at various UN mechanisms that might go beyond a fact-finding mission, maybe even considering a commission of inquiry report. This had a lot of benefits when it came to uh, implementing a commission of inquiry report when it came to North Korea human rights issues. It raised the profile of the issue in a way that we hadn't seen before. I think it could have similar impacts. In the, uh, in, in the instance of Burma and the Rohingya crisis. Two very briefly um, other issues that I wanted to highlight is that the Rohingya crisis has facilitated a stronger relationship between the U.S. and Bangladesh. This is positive and should be encouraged. The Bangladeshis have really stepped up and taken a lot of leadership when it comes to hosting these refugees in those local communities. If that's where uh, many of the Rohingya would prefer to stay, U.S. needs to put its money where its mouth is and support those local communities there and support the Bangladeshi government as well. And my third and final theme that I think has emerged is that the Rohingya crisis is an opportunity for the U.S. to demonstrate that it continues to value human rights and its foreign policy, that it views national security priorities and human rights as something that can work in tandem. I think that by making the Rohingya issue a priority, continuing to place emphasis on it over the long term, we will see that that is a cornerstone and will continue to be a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy efforts. This is the time to act. I think we've had a lot of different suggestions up here for what, what we can do. Hopefully now U.S. government will continue to devote the resources necessary to, to rectifying the situation. Great. Thank you, Olivia. We're a little bit over time, and I, I always like to stay on time, but say, making an exception, but we'll <clears throat> take a couple questions and then have everyone wrap up. Is that, that really Let's, um, okay, these three questions right here, we have three right in a row. No one else had their hand up, so that should get us. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for, for having this event. I think it's a really important one. Um, my name is Katie Smith. I'm with Search for Common Ground. Um, and I, I just wanted to say I really appreciate the framing of this event. What do we do now? Um, what comes next as we look forward after a year um, since the Rohingya crisis. And I think, you know, one of the things that stood out to me in Ambassador Curry's statements is these sparks of hope that, 
that she keeps going, um, you know, in terms of, of different civil society actors or those who are working to bridge divides and build out space um, to build a broader ecosystem of tolerance, diversity, um, that has been kind of an enabling factor of some of the violence that we've seen. So as we look forward in the next year about how we can protect civilians, I wanted to ask you about um, some of the opportunities you see beyond you know, within the U.S. toolbox of, of how we can support these broader efforts to, to dismantle this enabling um, system in a way that's holistic across the country so that we don't fall victim to the balloon effect where, um, you know, increased attention and pressure on one area allows for an explosion somewhere else. Thank you. Hi, again, Safan. Um, I will actually recall Lady's question. Um, there uh, tens of thousands of evidences, pictures, reports, videos collected, collected by the State Department itself, uh, UN, NGOs, even myself. Uh, why in the world can't we call it as genocide? Why? Um, uh, Ambassador Kelly said, this is what we call it right now, um, uh, but it may change in the, in the future. Uh, but this is not something new. This has been going on for decades, decades. Uh, and and what's, I, I'm not sure uh, what's holding back uh, the, the world calling it genocide. And I'm, I would appreciate if you uh, express your own comment on this. And uh, last question, Mr. Enos, uh, Mrs. Enos, um, do you really believe that the targeted uh, sanctions against uh, individuals, military and Myanmar individuals work out well? They don't even go out anyway. They don't have money outside of the country anyway, and they don't seem like they don't uh, they care about these uh, targeted uh, sanctions. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Sanjana from the Bangla Service of Voice of America. So uh, my first question is to Mr. Ukamin. So far, all the international community have been holding different kinds of programs, seminars, and everything. And they have all been talking about the ranges, and they have been to Cox's Bazaar, and they have seen for themselves how the situation is over there. How much have you actually benefited from all of this? That's my question to Mr. Ukamin. And for Ms. Olivia Noss, um, you said that United States needs to step up with the financial assistance to Bangladesh uh, to help the Rohingyas. Now, according to IOM, of the $181 million that's needed uh, for the Rohingyas, only 24% has so far been, uh, have so far been, like, they've collected. So what's going on with the rest of the money? Like, why haven't all the other international communities uh, that are showing so much concern about the Rohingya issue, how come they have not yet come together to help in this? Thank you. Jump in, would you like to start? Yes, I can. <clears throat> okay, very good question. There are a lot of studies, uh, a lot of organizations, and country representatives to the refugee camps. And we are highly encouraged. We feel encouraged because of their statements and their analysis especially from international organizations, including United Nations and the head of the, what you'll call, a UN-sponsored 
organizations who their remarks are very encouraging that these people are genuine victims of genocide it is not ripe enough time is not ripe enough for their return because myanmar had not prepared uh, a prepared something that they can return back to their place any hope i hope united nations world banks refugee international and other un sponsors organization will take active clear and prompt action for the repatriations of the refugees and they will try to create an atmosphere and environments in myanmar with cooperation with myanmar government that rohingya can return they have to explore to study to take what the concerns of rohingya refugees are as far as as a representative of rohingya today i would like the main question is their citizenship second is their identity because myanmar politics depends on identity at present there is penlong conference it is also a conference of identity based rights so our concern is citizenship full citizenship myanmar say we are going to give them citizenship after verification we have been verified for hundreds of times since independence what our concern is we need not any verification anymore we have bamis genuine citizenship cards those who formally held these bamis citizenship cards should be issued present citizenship card without verification no bmase and vc you have to hold and vc means national verification cards that means in the time during the process of verification it is a document that you live in myanmar not your myanmar citizen you came from bangladesh living in myanmar we identified you as a dweller here as a resident here with this card mm-hmm. we have a lot of documents that we are living here our family registration card our national registration cards our temporary registration cards and our employment cards and our ownership cards a lot of documents we have why should we need a nvc that is a conspiracy to make these people a strip of citizenship anyhow we are very uh, we are pleased encouraged by the a study and a statements and analysis of international organizations thank you thank you that was uh... There's one question I'm I'm, I'm uh, sorry we couldn't get more into and that is the the MOU that currently exists because arrangement has already been made and it's not uh, it's not sufficient it's not uh, satisfactory to the Rohingya themselves uh, but alas we don't have enough time to cover that uh, before the end so let me turn to Francisco Yeah although I think some of the arguments about why there's still a, a system of discrimination make it really difficult for any MOU to actually credibly uh repatriate and, and so until there's actual progress on citizenship um and some of the enabling root causes within northern Myanmar um it's 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 really 
uh, difficult to see how repatriation can actually take place under a safe, dignified, and voluntary manner. Um, I'll, I'll tackle Mrs. Smith's question because um, I think it's a very good one. Um, first is that uh, we think that accountability um, is important to sort of break through that cycle of impunity that the military is currently operated in. And it's not just um, happening in uh, Northern Rakhine State. Um, there was a really good briefing um, and hearing last week by the Tom Lantos uh, Commission in which uh, it sort of applied the you know crimes against humanity that were that happened in northern Rakhine to the broader context of what's going on now in Kachin and Shan uh, in northern Myanmar and so you know you saw many of the same tactics many of the same patterns uh, and, and in many cases the same military units that used to be in Kachin and Shan were sent to northern Rakhine we saw some of the worst brutal um, you know uh, violence happened and then were subsequently reassigned back to Kachin and Sean. And so it's getting at really at some of these recommendations, making sure that they uh, take into account the whole issue that's going on in Myanmar um, that is really important. And second is, as you were kind of mentioning, it's the system of discrimination and segregation that needs to be amended, whether it's a citizenship law, whether it's the Constitution, or many of these sort of what, what um, you know, my colleague mentioned as the Jim Crow laws, which get at the heart for why, um, you know, there's a lot of resentment and discrimination against the Rohingya and other ethnic minorities, which we feel need to be addressed. Yeah, I think that's also uh, part of Olivia's point earlier, was that we need to look at the issue in a much more systematic way. And, and even the legislation on the Hill that you mentioned doesn't look at it that way. It very much is looking at the Rohingya problem, which if you only focus on that uh, and you focus on it too narrowly, we miss the broader, the broader issue and what needs to be done more systematically. Yeah, and that was actually the point I was going to make is that, you know, when you're looking at the Rohingya crisis, you can also, it's it's impossible to only look at the Rohingya issue or only look at what's going on in Kachin State or otherwise and not have to look at the broader political reform process, which is completely stalled out. If you don't address some of the challenges with political reform, I don't think you're going to see forward movement on some of the Rohingya issues Kachin issues, a lot of the ethnic issues, you're just not going to see it because the Constitution just impedes forward progress and movement in Burma. So that's how I would answer um, your question, Kate. Um, the second question, why not genocide? Um, I have been reading a number of reports lately. There was one issued by Fortify Rights. Uh, it, I think it came out last week, actually, and it was really excellent. It made a case for genocide. Um, some of the facts that they outlined in that were um, there were preparations in advance of August 25th that suggest that this was perhaps a premeditated action by the military. It wasn't just a response to those ARSA attacks that you saw. And one of the arguments that they made that I found particularly convincing was that um, they were actually going around about three weeks prior to August 25th and confiscating the knives and any sort of thing that could be used as a weapon um, prior to then. And they were training um, non-Rakhine individuals to actually participate in some of the violence in advance of that. Um, you'll have to read the report. I may not be outlining it adequately, but it was the Fortify rights. No, no, no. This was the Burmese military going around and, and doing this. Um, and so I found it particularly convincing, and they also gave a pretty good overview of what ARSA's involvement was as well, so I found that it was pretty fair and balanced um, when it came to addressing those issues. Um, so I think maybe there will be 
room in the future to say that this is an actual genocide. Heritage doesn't have a formal position on this. Um, but I was encouraged that the U.S. government at least made the announcement about ethnic cleansing. I think that was an important moment, and um, maybe it'll be followed up with more. Um, your third question on whether or not targeted sanctions will work. The reason why I have confidence of this is, um, one, it seemed to have worked or at least have had some effect in the past um, to bring Burma towards democracy when we saw Aung San Suu Kyi brought to power and otherwise. Obviously, that moment, even though it was a watershed moment, didn't mean that the entire Burmese political system was reformed. Obviously, we still have challenges afterwards, but the sanctions did have impacts on the individual uh, Burmese military, and I believe that at least in part, the Obama administration's decision to lift those sanctions was too much too soon and maybe in part why the military felt it had the impunity to engage in the activities that it did. Um, the, the second sort of answer to that question, you mentioned that there um, isn't a lot of U.S. dollars. Maybe they don't have a lot of uh, bank accounts in the U.S. or otherwise. But I think that's a misunderstanding about sanctions. Any dollar-denominated currency passes through either the New York Federal Reserve or through a bank that the New York Federal Reserve has oversight over. Sorry, this is getting a little bit technical, but regardless of whether or not they have a bank account in the U.S., even if it's abroad, if they're using U.S. dollars, those have the ability to be frozen, and then also the sanctions have the ability to restrict movement. So I think that is helpful, and I think we should continue to proceed with that. That's why I believe they'll be successful. Then the final question was from uh, VOA Bangla Service on the financial assistance. I don't know exactly what's going on um, with the humanitarian aid. My understanding in the last numbers that I saw was that uh, UN OCHA had requested <coughs> something like $950 million and the U.S. was providing $244 million in assistance, and that was just toward Bangladesh. I don't know where that aid has gone or if it's already been distributed, but that still puts the U.S. as the number one distributor of aid. Maybe Kelly has an answer to that question. I'm not exactly sure why the aid hasn't been going to those communities. I mean, your point is still well taken that the crisis is so enormous that um, there just needs to be more international um, humanitarian assistance provided, um, not just by the United States, but um, given that the United States plays such an important leadership role. Um, and this is also going to be a long-term issue. It's not, um, oftentimes when I was in the camps, um, people talked about it, um, particularly the Bangladesh government talked about it in the context of months and, and maybe a couple years. Um, but, you know, as we've seen through um, the fact that there are Rohingya there from the 90s, this is a, a, a humanitarian issue that is going to take decades, um, if not longer, to solve. And so the international community needs to continue to pay attention to it and make sure that there's long-term investment in it. Yeah, you know, one final uh, point on the question about the military is that the targeted sanctions, I, I agree with everything Olivia said on that, but uh, in addition, we could be sanctioning the Burmese military as an institution um, going after um, military-owned companies and, and run uh, infrastructure and that sort of thing. Um, what's that? Um, I think we have we we do have to recognize the changes that have been made in the country. I think since 2012, and I think you have to you have to make allowance for that. It's not it's not 2010. It's not 1990. Um, you do have a civilian government elected. Uh, Suu Kyi is not where I would like her to be on this issue, um, but things have changed so much. Release of political prisoners, 
there's some still, but I mean, the vast majority of them were, were released. Uh, freedom of the press, again, problems, but much different than it was in the 1990s. I think you have to recognize that things have moved on and go after what the problem is. And the problem is the military. And it's not just individual uh, members of the military. It's the military as an institution uh, that is a problem. And certainly we shouldn't be opening new avenues of engagement with the military. And, and that's that's the thing, I think, in the immediate term that we have to guard against because there's always someone with that, that good idea or you know, good quote-unquote idea uh, to pursue. So with that, uh, thank you very much for being here. We're going we're gonna to leave it there. Yeah. Can you, why don't you ask her afterwards? Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs>